You're listening to Australian Spotlight. Since starting university mathematics age nine, Terence Tower has gone on to win the Fields Medal, considered the Nobel Prize for Mathematics, and is regarded by many as the world's greatest living mathematician. We went down to his UCLA office for a chat. Here it is. Well, you uh, grew up in Adelaide yes, in I did. Australia. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, I was born in 75. Um, you know, the, the place hasn't changed that much uh, since actually. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I, I went to a small school. I went to Flinders University, uh, which is a small uni by mm-hmm. national standards, but it was, it was, it was great for me. Um, you know, I, I graduated in a class of like three people. And do you remember your first experience with maths? Um, so I don't, but my parents say that they, they caught me when I was two, um, uh, trying to teach some older kids how to count um, with uh, these these uh, wooden uh, number blocks. And uh, they hadn't taught me this. And when they asked me where I learned this, apparently said that I, I, I learned from watching Sesame Street. So I, I always liked math. You know, my um, one of my first memories I do remember was was when my grandmother was washing the windows at, at her house. And I sort of demanded that she, she put uh, the detergent on the windows in the shape of numbers. I always liked numbers and patterns and, and logic puzzles and computer programming and things like that you know it, it, things that are so black and white yeah. um that 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 there's no sort of uh, um, subject subjectivity about yeah. it you know when, when i was like you know six or seven when when i was restless in, in the evening my, my parents would give me maths workbook books to work on and uh you know i was one of my favorite activities i just like solving these these uh, little uh, math puzzles you progressed i guess pretty quickly through school i think mm-hmm. you started high school when you were or high school classes when you were seven and university classes when you were nine right it's a bit complicated uh because um uh, my parents try to keep my home group roughly in my own age when yeah. i took maths and science classes at a um, yeah, so when I was eight, for example, I'd be in year eight, yeah. uh, but taking classes at Flinders. Um, yeah. Um, and was that scary or intimidating for a, such a young kid? Yeah, so it was, it was, there were some weird things. So like uh, when, when I was, um, I think, um, yeah, when I was seven or eight, I was taking um, like mass 12, um, yeah, year 12 mass, and they had a special cushion for me on the chair uh, because I couldn't reach the table uh, without, <laughs> without it. Uh, but they, they had someone from the class uh, take care of me, you know, uh, make sure that I was, I was doing all right. Um, and I think after like the first week or so, it, it wasn't weird anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was at my level, you know, so it, it wasn't like I was better or worse than the other kids in, in the class. Mm. Um, so, you know, we were all struggling with the same homework assignments and we were asking each other how to do things. And was there a particular person um, early on who really influenced you? Uh, there were quite a few. Uh, my uh, my, um, it was, there was a deputy uh, headmistress at my uh, high school who was who was great. You know, she uh, she let me stay in her office and um, she taught me Latin actually, and uh, also let me play computer games on her computer, which was uh, probably not a, not a good idea actually. But, um, there were some retired professors um, at uh, that I, I spent um, uh, the weekends with growing up, um, mm. and uh, they would just come and chat mass with me. Um, you know, so one of them would, would tell me stories about what uh, what he did during the war, how he, how he used maths to improve artillery or something. Wow! Um, and it, that was just fun, you know, just to see maths used outside of a school context. Yeah. Um, yeah. My at uh, at Flinders, my my undergraduate advisor was uh, very very influential in making me making sure I stayed in mathematics and urged me to study abroad. So mm. I went to Princeton. Mm. Then my graduate advisor. Made sure that I stayed in mathematics, and I, I, I got a job actually in the states. Um, so I, I came here to UCLA. I read that um, as a young boy, you uh, met the legendary mathematician Paul Paul Erdish. Erdish. Yes. Um, what can you remember about that day? Um, not much, uh, actually. Yeah, <laughs> so I was about ten or so. Um, yeah. I think there was some maths event going on at the University of Adelaide uh, that we were at, and he was there too. Um, so he, he's always been known for 
talking to encouraging uh, gifted young kids. Um, yeah. So he talked to me and he basically immediately gave me a math problem. Um, and so we started talking for uh, for a while. And at this point, my mom took a photo. And so this, we have this photo on the net of me with Erdish. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I think the one thing I remember was, was that he treated me like like an equal. I think this is this is the, the thing about Erdish and, and, and kids. Like he, he he never was sort of patronizing or... Mm. Um, you know, I mean, he just, you know, he, he gave me an all sincerity, like an unsolved mass bomb, which is still unsolved. I would love to solve it. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. And then later he sent me a postcard uh, with uh, with that uh, problem on it. Um, and then later later still, he actually wrote a letter for me to get in Princeton. A couple of years ago, you went on to solve one of the problems that he posed in the early 20th century and that had gone unsolved for 80 years. Right, right. So, so Erdish is famous for posing little problems. Mm. Um like he would write papers which is with titles like some of my favorite problems, and there'd be like a hundred questions out there. Um, but he had a knack for for choosing really good problems, so, so problems that were not too easy, not too hard. But by solving them, you had to come up with a new trick, which would be interesting in itself. Mm. Um, yeah. So there, there was this question called the Erdős discrepancy problem, um, which uh, yeah, I actually worked on several years ago, and we got stuck um, with a bunch of people on the internet um, and. Uh, uh, we, we got stuck at some point, but there was a breakthrough about two years ago, uh, which unblocked that, and I got very excited. And in the world of maths, um, mm-hmm. there is something equivalent to the the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, there's something equivalent in the Erdős, right? So yeah, so this maths world called the Erdős number. Yeah, so 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 um, it, it's, it's how close you are mathematically to Erdős. So so Erdős has the Erdős number of zero. Anyone who writes a paper with Erdős has an Erdős number of one. Anyone who writes a paper with a person who wrote a paper with Erdős has an Erdős number of two. Okay, and so forth. So. And so what's your number? My number is two, okay. um, and it probably won't ever go lower because Erdős died about ten years ago. Yeah. So the the, fun, the the funny thing is that most mathematicians, you know, their their Erdős numbers are at most like six or seven. Like it, it, mathematicians are all very connected. Mm. Um, I think it's the same with, with Bacon. You know, so, so so Kevin Bacon appeared in so many different movies and, and so many different genres that, that most actors are also connected within like five or six degrees of separation yeah. from, from Kevin Bacon. And it's a testament to their prodigious output right. in movies and in math. Like there's a thing called the Erdős Bacon number. Which, oh, is, wow. <laughs> which is the sum of the Erdős number and the Bacon number, which is usually infinite. But but there's like uh, like a half dozen people who have, are mathematicians who also have appeared in movies. And so, you know, I know someone who with the Erdős Bacon number like seven or something. Well, you're in the right town, Los Angeles, to uh, get a good Erdős Bacon number. Yeah, one day maybe. <laughs> life goals. Yeah. Um, I think you were 17 You had and you jumped on a plane to the United States to study a PhD at mm-hmm. Princeton. What do you remember about those early days as a young Australian here in the United States? So uh, my dad came with me for for a month um, just to make sure I could do the basic things. So, so you know, when I was at home, my mom did all the laundry, for example. So I had to learn how to do laundry for myself, um, open a bank account, um, you know, figure out how to, uh, to cook for myself. Yeah. For, um, my mom tried to teach me to cook when I was uh, at home, but uh, like five minutes in, she would just like ah, take over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> Yeah, so I had to learn all these things, but you know, it, it, you you live in a dorm. Um, you ha- you have all the um, you have all your classmates who are um, living with you and uh, in the same building, and and uh, you and they're struggling too. And uh, it was fun. Actually, it, it was. Uh, I, I felt more among my peer group more there than when I was growing up because I was always accelerated. Most of my um, peers were older than me. I guess they still were older than me, to, um, but but somehow it it, it felt like uh, we were closer in some way. We yeah. Were, okay. Um, you know, we'd go out to movies together. Uh, in Princeton, it was um, it gets really, really cold in, in like you know um, negative ten, negative twenty in, in, in the so winter. Cute. You know, and uh, you know, we're all poor grad students. You know, very few of us had cars, and those of us who had cars had no heating. 
in the cars. So when we were to go out, we had to pack six people in the car. There was, there was no choice. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we always invite each other to movies and stuff. It was always great. And w- do you remember, was, was there a, a steep learning curve for you, I guess, in, in that new environment? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of maths, which I realized I just did not know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Princeton also, this uh, is a very small town, even smaller than Adelaide. <laughs> and there's, 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 there's nothing to do there other than, than, than be at uni. Uh, yeah. So uh, I basically... Well, except that the, the, the World Wide Web came out that year. That was a bad time for me. <laughs> I wasted a lot of time on that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the library. You know, the grad students, you know, they taught each other. We held little seminars. Um, there was this big, scary exam called the uh, the qualifying exam. It's mm. a two-hour oral exam where, like, three professors come in and, and interrogate you on on uh, on what math you know. And if you, you know, if you answer a question correctly, they just give you a harder question. Yeah. And uh, I almost failed it, actually, because um, okay. I didn't take it seriously enough. Um, I, I was used, um, you know, as, a, as an undergraduate, I was, I was used to sort of cramming like for a week before an exam and, and sort of scraping by and then forgetting everything that, that I had just studied. Okay. And I tried the same technique uh, for, for this exam, but there was far more knowledge to, to learn than I had realized. Okay. Um, and so did you change your method? Thereafter? Yeah. So my, my advisor came afterwards. He said it was disappointed. You know, I had all these great letters. I was a letter from Erdish and saying how, how great I was. And, you know, it, and mm. uh, I was, uh, I didn't perform to expectations. And, and I, I, that's when I started getting my act together. You know, played a few less computer games and, <laughs> and actually uh, studied properly. So you graduate uh, with a PhD from Princeton. I think you were around 20. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there were opportunities opening up um, all around the world. But you decided to come here to LA. Why was that? Right. So actually, I think I only, I only got like three offers. <laughs> I, I, uh, oh. <laughs> MIT, UCLA, and, and New South Wales. I think part of the problem is I didn't apply to enough places. But okay. um, <laughs> I was a bit sick of the snow after four years in Princeton. And I wanted yeah. to be closer to home. Okay. Um, so I picked LA. And I really loved it. It's, it's really sunny. People are friendly. And it's got everything. I, I I've decided I'm a big city person. All right. And here you are 20 years later, still here. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I've settled down, got married, got kids. Yeah. You know, one of your sort of early breakthroughs while you were here in LA, while you've been here in LA, was something called the Green Tower Theorem. Oh, yes. yes. Um, what can you tell me about the lead up to that breakthrough? Okay. So, yeah. So, that's the question. So, that's the theorem about prime numbers um, and finding patterns in the prime numbers. So, prime numbers are numbers that can't be divided by any smaller number other than one, mm. so two, three, five, seven, eleven. Um, so uh, Ben and I, Ben Green and I, found um, that that um, even though these primes are sort of irregularly distributed, they they, they they the big gaps and small gaps between them, within the primes you, you can find patterns. So this was an, an old problem. Actually, Erdős also uh, uh, was interested in this, in this question. Okay. Um, but uh, we weren't directly trying to solve this problem because we thought it was too hard. Um, and we were working on something related, which uh, was nowhere near as sort of famous or, or well known. But uh, it was a problem which which seemed much more manageable and we made a breakthrough on that problem and then Ben realized that that once we could solve that problem we had a chance of, of, of tackling this, uh, this question about the primes so we spent six months doing nothing but that um, and then <laughs> we we finally cracked it so that, yeah that, that was great um, we didn't believe it at first we all you know we, we each thought that maybe that the, that the other had made a mistake in their half of the proof because <laughs> it was it was just too good to be true but we, we checked everything thoroughly it checked out yeah and I mean you you've since collaborated um, a lot with Ben Green. Oh, what yeah. is it about the two of you that um, brings you back together over and over again to tackle these sort of frontier problems? Oh, well, he's, I don't know, we, we fit very well together. So, so Ben has got like this great vision. He sees sort of what 
questions would be, would are, are good to work on because they they have they'll lead to to, to good answers. And mm. I'm sort of more in the trenches. I, I sort of hack and use brute force to solve the problems. But he 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 sort of knows where to go. Okay, yeah, it's it's a great collaboration. A couple of years afterwards, I think um, 2006 was a really big year for you. Mm. You became the first Australian to win the field medal. Oh yes, yeah. Um, like the Nobel Prize for mathematics, and yeah. I think you were also awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, that was intense. Yeah. <laughs> what? Tell me about that year. Oh yeah, that, that was a bit of a blur. Uh, after the builders like there's a big media scrum. Yeah, you know, there, there's a um, yeah. I got all this. Yeah, so I got, you know, suddenly I got invited to like embassies and 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 uh, you know I'd, I'd go to events um, where you know like Russell Crowe perform or something. Like that. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Um, and you know there, there, there was like there was like a month of this where I felt like a you know a rock star. So I can get used to this. Okay, and then it stopped. Uh, you know, and then you know the invitations dried up, and then I got back. You know, but. Uh, just when I was getting used to it. <laughs> Just as you get used to it. Yeah, that was fun. I, I um, yeah. So there's a ceremony in Madrid for the um, uh, for the Fields Medal, um, and um, and the King of Spain, Juan Carlos, uh, wow. yeah, presents the, the medals. You know, so there's a photo of me, you know, shaking his hand. And the funny thing actually is, um, I'm wearing a suit, and I had brought it. I had brought a suit from 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 LA, um, but uh, when I landed in Spain, my my, my luggage got. Uh, got lost in, in Charles de Gaulle Airport in, in, in Paris, which is a common thing. <laughs> yeah, um, and so I had no suit, um, and like the, the, the ceremony was the next day, um, <laughs> so I had to go to, into a, a Spanish um, department store, El Corte Inglés, and uh, in very very broken Spanish, I was able to to, to order a suit, uh, which I wore in front of the king the next day. The thing is, there's, there's um, um, I haven't told many people, but the, 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 the suit had this this cardboard collar thing, uh, yeah. uh, thing to keep the collar stiff, mm-hmm. and I forgot to take it out. Um, <laughs> So actually, if you look very, very closely in the photo of me and the king, there's a little piece of cardboard you can you can just see. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he didn't notice. He would have been happy you were wearing a Spanish suit. <laughs> yes, yeah, I still use it. Actually, it's very good in the summer. So um, just a couple of years ago, um, you met someone famous in a different field, um, maybe not the king of Spain, but you were on the Colbert Report. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So he actually invited me in 2006, um, and at the time I was scared because I, I had, you know, he has his reputation for sort of destroying his uh, his his, his um, Guess yeah. and this was in the aftermath of you right. winning the Fields Medal right. and the MacArthur. So I actually declined at the time, but then okay. um, it was just um, like you said, maybe ten years later. Or so it was it was the final year of of his show, the Colbert Report, and uh, he invited me again. Well, he stopped it, um, and uh, I thought it was my last chance. And yeah, I, I was always regretting, you know, not uh, not showing up. So yeah, I, I accepted this time. Um, and it was fun, you know. So I flew out to, to New York, and uh, he and his staff they 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 really do the homework and prepare, you know. So the the um I was first interviewed by the staff, and then about prime numbers and things, and then and then Colbert came, you know, while I was in the like the the what's it called the dressing room or something, yeah. and uh, you know, and and he had a nice chat with me. He was he was very friendly and very very quick and intelligent, and he had really mm. prepared. He asked me all these questions about primes, which I didn't realize that that he would know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He didn't tell me in advance what jokes he would use. Um, <laughs> So, you know, but, but the, the advice I got was, was not to try to out-funny him, you know, just, you know, be the straight man that this is, this is, this is, this is what you, the guest should show. be. Yeah. Yeah. I think he asked you a question about sexy primes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is a term in mathematics called a sexy prime. Two primes are different by six, right? Sex is, is the Latin for six. Ah, okay. Uh, and he made a joke about it, which made me laugh, but I, I forgot <laughs> what it was. And so... Um, you once said that in retrospect, you don't think you were truly doing maths uh, as a child and that you didn't really learn the deeper meaning of the subject until later in your life. What did you mean by that? So, I mean, my experience with maths, like like many kids growing up, is, is you know some authority figure, like a teacher, who gives you problems to solve and, mm. and you solve them and, and, and you don't really know why you have to find sign of this or divide this by that. Um, and it, 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 to me, it was a game. 
You know, it was like a computer game, you know, it, it was all a crossword puzzle. It's just, you know, and I, I enjoyed the game. But, you know, it, it was not until a lot, a lot later that I realized that, you know, you use maths to, you know, for instance, you know, encrypt uh, your, your, your ATM machine communications or, or um, you know, if, if you want to have multiple cell phones in, in the same area, call, you know, make phone calls without interference. You know, there, there are mathematical algorithms that do that. Mm. And you take it for granted. And um, it was really cool once I was in college, you know, learning, you know, science and technology and so forth and, and, and realizing that at, for each one of these things at some point some clever math was involved and once you have enough math training you can see that on, and, and you can sort of see it, it being used so one of the things I'm most proud of actually is, is um, so most of my maths uh, research is completely pure you know so like this green tile theory and finding progressions in the primes doesn't have any practical applications as far as I know mm. um, but there was one thing I did which which did uh, have, have practical impact um, so I worked with someone who was uh, an applied mathematician who also works in statistics and uh, engineering. We developed um, a way to um, more efficiently use measurements, um, take measurements. So, like uh, if 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 you're having an MRI scan, mm. um, um, it takes a long time to scan the whole body uh, because you, you need to take a lot of measurements to get a, a good picture of your organs. Mm. So, but we found a way to use many fewer measurements. Um, to still get a high-resolution image. Um, and so uh, we actually ended up um, speeding up uh, many MRI scans, something which would take like a, like three minutes, you know, take like you know, 10 to 15 seconds. Um, and is that one of the things that drives you, um, the, the practical application of your research, or are you also driven by the thrill of the chase, or is it that aha moment of cracking something? That's that's more what I, I yeah. So I, 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 generally, I definitely prefer pure, uh, more abstract math problems, which are cleaner. Uh, Real-world problems are kind of messy, and sometimes this, the solution, which is the most elegant in your mind, is not the one that actually works best in, mm. in, in practice. Um, what was great with working with this, co with this collaborator of mine, Emmanuel Candes, was that, was that he, he had this knack of taking a messy real-world problem and distilling this, this very clean, abstract uh, math problem, which if you solve that problem, would, would solve um, the real-world problem. And so that was something I, I could work on. So we, we, were, we were a great team. Um, I read somewhere that um, Professor Charles Pfefferman, I'm mm -hmm. not sure if he was one of your professors at Princeton. Or, he was, yeah. Uh, he described um, math research as like playing chess with the devil. Does that ring true to you? Yeah, that, that there's certainly you. You um, after a while, you tend to anthropomorphize your what you work on. You know, mm -hmm. so uh, Paul Erdős would would say that um, sometimes the problems fight back. <laughs> you know, so you you want to solve your problem, so you try some technique, and it feels like the problem is moving out, you know, to to out of the way of that technique, it's trying to uh, to block you and survive, and it, it it helps to to sort of give your um, your your problems a, a human face. You know, so yeah, we, we talk about the enemy, and and we talk about um, some some terms in an equation might be good guys we're trying to help you and someone got bad guys and uh, you were talking about attacking problems and defeating them um, mm. you, you have to use, somehow use all your, your brain power to, to, to solve these things and, and so making these problems feel more like a real world conflict I think can, can, can help sometimes it helps yeah. I think you once described doing math research as similar to rock climbing what did you mean by that? well so actually a lot of mathematicians are, are rock climbers um, and in fact rock climbers um, they have a lingo which which is similar to um, to mathematicians in some way so so um, um, a climb is, is, is sometimes called a problem um, in rock climbing and when you've successfully achieved the climb you solve the problem hmm. um, but uh, you know, so 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 many uh, problems in mathematics are, are like this: this huge, tall cliff that, uh, at first glance, there's, there's just no way you can reach it, no matter how strong you are mm. or what tools you have. But uh, but what you do is that you find some intermediate goal, you know, some some ledge or something, which which uh, is easier to reach. But if you reach that, you can you can use a stepping stone. So we're we're always trying to find stepping stones. We're trying to find easier problems to to warm up on first to to gain sort of some skill. Mm. Um, 
So yeah, there, there, there is sort of this similarity, although I myself don't, don't rock climb. I've seen quotes by you and fellow mathematicians that's saying that there might be a particular problem that you're working on and you think it might be 10 or 20 years or 30 years away from solution. Right. But then other times there just seems to be a sudden surprise breakthrough. For example, your um, green tower theorem. Um, yeah, there, there are always surprises. It's just so episodic, you know, like, like there, there can be decades where nothing much happens, but it, it feels like sort of water's building up behind a dam. Like mm. there's, there's this big wall that we, we, can't, um, we can't get past. Uh, we can only solve problems on, on this side of the wall, but not, not the other side. We get very, very good at solving problems on this side. And it's, it's like water building up on the dam. At some point, there's a, a breakthrough. The dam mm. cracks, and then there's a big flood. And then it's very exciting. There's a whole new area of, of problems that, that you couldn't touch before. But you have this new, new idea, this, this breakthrough. And so there's this big rush mm. to, to, to solve all these problems. And, and so there's, there's a big burst of activity. But then you, you find another wall behind that and, and then it, it steadies down again and then it builds up again but some problems you can see that just sort of one breakthrough away and then some are like 10 breakthroughs away yeah so some problems they seem close and you're known for your collaborative approach um, mm -hmm. I think you even publish a lot of your progress on your own blog why is that openness and that collaborative spirit so important to you um, well I, th I think this is the way maths is these days so, so you know in the past um, mathematicians were famous for sort of locking themselves up in, in ivory towers for seven years, working on a single problem. It's, mm. Some people still do that. Um, but um, nowadays, um, most problems in mathematics are interdisciplinary. You, you, you need expertise from many different fields of mathematics, or maybe some fields outside of mathematics. Um, and more and more, you need to collaborate. And so, in fact, I think now the majority of papers now are, joint, you know, are jointly written, and the number of, average number of authors has been increasing mm. over time. But, you know, I myself have learned so much from, from the internet. So my own blog, you know, I mean, it's a two-way street. So I, I talk about what I've been doing, but I get all these corrections and comments and feedback from my, my, my blog commenters. And I've learned, actually, a huge amount of mathematics from the readers of my blog. Mm. It's just faster and, and more lively, and it, it, it feels more, more fun. So it's, it's the way of the future. Nowadays, when I want to learn some piece of math, the first thing I often do is go to Wikipedia. You know, <laughs> I, I wish there was, you know, as a grad student, you had to go to the library. There were these encyclopedias of mathematics. You have to dig up journals, and you know, you have to hunt down a single person who might know this, this, uh, this is one fact. It's, it's so much, you know, the question and answer sites now are devoted to math, research mathematics. They're just, it's so much easier now. Yeah. yeah. That's quite a plug for Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, and as you mentioned that mathematics these days in the twenty first century is very interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. You yourself are very interdisciplinary. Someone described one of your contributions as like an English language novelist coming out and suddenly producing the definitive Russian novel. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, why is it that you like to work in that way? Different mathematicians have different styles. Uh, so there are many mathematicians who choose one field, subfield of mathematics, and specialize. In it and become like like a world expert in, in like a, a, a certain specific area, become very very deep. Um, uh, so I've never really had the patience for that actually. Um, mm. After working on a few years on an area, I kind of get restless. I, I want something different. I want a bit more variety. Mm. Um, so I, I I definitely feel myself much more as a broad mathematician than a, than a deep mathematician. Mm. Uh, but I love collaborating with the deep mathematicians. Right? They, I've often moved into a different field because I I made friends with start working with someone who was a real expert. In that field, um, like when I came to UCLA, there was a postdoc here who was you know, was doing partial differential equations, uh, which is a subject I hadn't really learned uh, while at Princeton. And so we started collaborating, and I, I learned PD from him. You know, when I 
met Ben Green, we started working on number theory and mm. a lot of number theory and, and so on and so forth. Um, so a lot of what the fields that I work in, I, I got drawn into because of collaborator. The same Professor Pfefferman once described you as a Mr. Fix-It for frustrated researchers. Uh, and yeah, um, yeah. one way, if, if they're stuck on a problem, one way out is to try and grab your interest. That, what? <laughs> that quote has given me so much strife over the years, actually, because I, <laughs> I got so many emails from people wanting to interest me in their, in their, in their problems. And yeah. I, I eventually had to put up a, a notice on my webpage, please do not send me sort of unsolicited uh, requests yeah. to, to work on things because I, I just don't have the time. But... Uh, um, that, that being said, you know, every so often I, I do actually talk to someone who I had no idea um, I would be talking with and, and they would have an interesting problem. Mm. Um, I'm just finishing up a project now because uh, someone a month or two ago just um, made an appointment to see me in my office and, and we had a, had a problem which actually interested me. Yeah. And so what, what is grabbing your interest now? What's the what's the next big dam that you're hoping to see <laughs> break? I guess my, my, my two big things I'm working on now, um, both of which I'm not close to solving but I would love to make progress on. Uh, so... So one is the twin prime conjecture. So I'm still working on prime numbers. Twin primes are pairs of primes that are distance two apart, like um, 11 and 13, for instance. Um, and it's not known if, if they go on forever or if there's just a finite supply of the twin primes. This is one of the oldest questions in, in, in number theory, actually, and it's still not solved. Mm. Um, but I feel like this is like only one or two breakthroughs away, actually. We, we have some sort of progress on this problem in the last few years. Mm. The other problem I'm working on is completely different. Um, it has to do with something called the Navier-Stokes equations, mm -hmm. which are the equations that govern water. Um, and, uh, but, um, what's, but we, we don't understand whether these, these equations are really valid for all time, um, or whether they, they become so unphysical um, mm. after a certain time. So what could happen, and this is literally a million dollar question, um, is, is there some starting configuration of water, um, which if you run the equations, what would happen is that some of the velocities of the particles would go off infinity. Hmm. Um, which can't happen. You know, water cannot sort of explode off in, in, in uh, the speed of light. Mm. Um, but there's nothing preventing that mathematically as far as we can tell. And in fact, I, I believe we can actually construct some really weird configuration of water that can actually blow itself up, sort of a water bomb. I've seen that, for example, you have written some books that are targeted at school-age students. One or two. I've seen also that you've um, contributed some of your prize money to programs to help graduate students, for example, in developing countries. So giving back, you know, teaching and, and writing books and so forth, I mean, uh, it feels more useful, actually, than, mm. than, than and the research is fun. You know, services, you know, these, these sort of things that... Yeah, that, that's where you feel like you're, you're actually making a long-term difference. You know? yeah. it's, it's really great you know, when you teach somebody and, and initially they, they don't get a concept in, in mathematics, but then at the, you, know, you see the, the light going in their eyes, you know, aha, they, they, they get it. You know? um, it, it really is a satisfying feeling. Yeah. Um, and like if you train a graduate student, they, they go on and have a successful career and they, they start solving problems by themselves. You, know, you, you feel like a proud parent. You know, <laughs> you, you know, I helped. You know? And final question, mm -hmm. what do you miss most about Australia? Um, the food, actually. Yeah, so, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, um, for a while, though, there was an Australian uh, tucker shop here right, that sold meat pies and Tim Tams and so forth, but it, it oh, closed down because uh, some of them are not popular here. Tragedy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I haven't, haven't had a good meat pie for a while. <laughs> I, I think we can arrange one for you. <laughs> You've been so generous with your time. Can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks very much for the chat. Yeah, it was great. Right, cheers. Please do leave us a review and follow the Australian Consulate General Los Angeles on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.